Hebrews chapter 4, verse, I'm sorry, not verse 16, verse 14, all the way through to chapter 5, verse 10. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obliged to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. This morning, as we come to this text, I want to start just by um, reminding you of what has already been said in the book of Hebrews. We have seen that Jesus is the better message. He's the better messenger. He's better than the angels. He is God incarnate. He's God himself. He is uh, 100%, we we say in our our Christian history, he's 100% God, 100% man. So we believe that Jesus is 100% God and man, fully God, fully man. I know how that doesn't make any sense, but tough, sometimes theology, the answer is just yes. Is it this way or this way? Yes. That's sometimes the answer. So this is one of those cases. Is Jesus 100% God or 100% man? And you say yes. Yes. That's 200%, right. Yes. That's the way that this works. So God defies our understanding and says Jesus is uh, fully God. He's greater than the angels. Not only is he greater than the angels, but he's greater than Moses who came before. He's the greater prophet. He's the greater. Uh, he's the greatest king that comes. He's, he's the greater. Jesus is better. He's better than all these things. He's better than the law. And now we're going to see in the next several weeks, Jesus is the better high priest. He's the greater high priest. 
So we've been urged in the book of Hebrews to turn our eyes, focus on Jesus, and zero in on who he is. In chapter 3 it said, consider Jesus. And we, we read about how that was, focus your eyes and stare at him. Focus your energy on him. Focus your attention on him. Focus on Jesus. Least you drift one way or the other. Stay in the middle, focused on Christ. And we read about that, and now we dive back in after taking a four-week break to study what the high priest was. I hope that was beneficial to you. Um, if you missed any of it, it's, it's up on the podcast. But um, I hope that was helpful to understand the high priest's role. We took that four-week break, and now we dive back into the text where he begins to talk about Jesus, the greater high priest. Jesus, the better high priest. So having laid out all these things and then ended the first half of chapter 4 by saying, Jesus is the better rest, the better Sabbath. He's the one that leads you into Sabbath rest, peace with God. Now he says, since then, in verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So first, we have a great high priest. He's not an average high priest. He's not a stereotypical high priest. He's a great high priest. The author of Hebrews wants you to understand one thing through the letter. Jesus is great. If he were to subtitle his book, it would be Hebrews, Jesus is awesome. That would be the subtitle. The entire book is designed to point you to think about Jesus as the greatest thing. He says here, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So I want you to get this, and this can mean a couple things. This can be a reference to the ascension, right, where Jesus literally flew into the sky, passed into the heavens. This can be a reference to the Holy of Holies, where the veil was torn and Jesus walked out to us through the heavenly uh, temple gate, basically. Through the gates of heaven, through the veil that covered us from the Holy of Holies. This can mean, symbolically, that Jesus uh, has passed through what once blocked us to God and makes intercession for us. Now, as you can see from the sermon notes, I believe that this is a reference to the curtain being torn. It's a reference to God giving access to his person in the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus has passed through the heavens. In the same way that Moses was the only one able to go up to the mountain, go up to the top of the mountain to hear from God. So Jesus is the only one righteous who can stand before a holy God and make intercession on our behalf. So we have a great high priest who has torn the veil and walked through and made access for us to God. Now, in order to understand that, I need to do, just in case you don't have this background, I need to just do a quick overview 
of Genesis 1 through 3. So Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and earth. He determines what's good by seeing what is good, saying it's good, and it is, give me the word, good. He sees it's good, he says it's good, and it's good. Then, in Genesis chapter 2, God uh, makes man and woman. It's this zeroing in on that process. He makes man, uh, then says it's not what? It's not good. It's the first time that God says not good. Literally two words, low toe, not good. So he makes man, puts him in the garden, and goes, this isn't going to work out well. And then he says he needs help. And so he puts the man to sleep. He takes a rib from him. He fashions a woman. We believe this. It sounds crazy. Doesn't matter. It's true. So he takes the man, puts him to sleep, takes a rib out of him, fashions for him a woman out of that rib. She's taken from his side. There's all kinds of things that you can say there. Just let your mind run. He takes her, makes her, brings her to the man. Man says, Isha. Like, wow, this is a woman. That's what Hebrew, it's Isha. Man is Ish, woman is Isha. Right? Like, so that's what he says. He gets excited. He says, this, wow, woman. Man then, uh, before he makes a woman, man names all the animals. He then calls man, he then calls woman, woman, or of man, Isha, and then they together are given the commission of cultivating the garden, spreading the garden out. So their job was to take the Garden of Eden, the paradise garden, and spread it out over the whole earth, to take the image of God, to be fruitful and multiply, and spread that over the whole earth, so that everything on earth would have God's face on it. Awesome. Chapter 3. Hooray. Chapter 3 flips the entire order. In chapter 1 and 2, you had God who makes man, gives him his word, makes woman beside man, and by his word, they're supposed to rule over the beasts. Chapter 3 starts with the beast showing up. The first character mentioned is the snake. Snake then talks to the woman. Woman then talks to the man, and they try to rule over God. As you can imagine, that goes really, really badly. God gave them one command, don't eat of this particular tree. They are in the middle of the garden standing by that tree because we're human and we're knuckleheads and we do this all the time. You're just like them. Don't don't scorn Adam and Eve. You would do the same thing. So we'd be standing in the middle of the garden and the snake comes up, beast comes up. He talks to the woman, not the man. He addresses her. Did God say... She says, no, God didn't say that we can't touch it. Or God, didn't, God, God said that we cannot even touch it, at least we die. So she adds a fence around God's command. Don't eat it. He didn't say don't touch it. He said don't eat it. She adds that to it. She adds to God's command building a fence around it, just like I do with my kids. If I don't want them to eat the cake that's in the kitchen, don't go in the kitchen. Right? That's the command. Right? Same thing we all do. And so she makes this fence. It doesn't work. The snake says, you won't die. He blatantly contradicts God. And then they eat of the fruit. And what they are doing, she sa- it says, she saw it was a delight to her eyes and that it would be a delight to her mouth. She saw that what God said was not good was good. And she wanted it. And by her mouth, by eating it, she proclaimed, this is good. What God proclaimed as evil, she proclaims as good. Then, least you think that it's Eve's fault completely, she hands it to her husband, 
who's been standing there the whole time. And he gladly takes a bite and eats. And they both, suddenly the scripture says, have their eyes opened, and they see that they are naked and bare before the Lord, and they are ashamed, and they go try to make coverings for themselves. Unable to cover themselves, they make speedo and bikini, that's what the word means in Hebrew, just enough covering. Um, They make those and they hide in the bushes, and God comes and utters the most devastating phrase to be heard in Scripture, Adam, where are you? The all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, all-present God asks a question that is devastating to think about. All of a sudden, there's a distance between God and man. There's a distance between heaven and earth. There's a distance between the presence of life and death. And you can imagine, years later, Adam plowing the dirt that has now become hard to plow because of sin. You can imagine him just racked with guilt, hearing that phrase in his head, Adam, where are you? I imagine that there were times when he was working in the field later on in his life where he just fell on the ground. Remembering that phrase, tremble. God is good and God is faithful. And for Adam and Eve, he makes them robes to cover them. A symbol of the robe that we would one day wear before him because his son has covered our sin in his death. An image of what is to come in redemption of Jesus Christ rescuing us from sin and covering our sinfulness before the Lord. So all this said, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Not just some random man. Not created. Begotten, not created. That's the phrase that you need to learn. He's begotten, not created. He's born, not created. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is the eternal Son of God. And He has passed through the heavens on our behalf as a great high priest. And we now get access to God. We now get access to God. That's insane. Remember earlier in the service I asked you to consider the disparity, the distance between the Creator and the created. And then consider the value He places on you by bringing you to his, to Himself. He doesn't, he doesn't have to value you. He's not obliged. But He redeems and rescues you and sends you a great high priest because He's good. So there's our confession. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, Son of God, The way we phrase this is Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. This is the basic Christian confession of faith. 
Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. Those two things define Christ and basic Christianity. You can unpack those two words pretty extensively. Don't worry, we're not going to do that right now. But you can unpack them pretty extensively. And understanding Savior and Lord is important. That is our basic confession of faith. So he says here in chapter 4, verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. Let us grab tightly to our confession. This is again a call to set Jesus in front of your eyes always. To make sure Jesus is present in front of you always. To hold fast to your confession. It is easy to be holding on to our confession of faith. That Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. It is easy in this life to drift to be holding tightly and to think about other things and start to drift off and to see, oh, that looks interesting. I'm going to get into that for a little bit. And slowly your grip starts to loosen. And you stop measuring everything by whether or not it, it brings into view a proper view of Christ. It's easy to drift. It's easy to get distracted by noises. By these things. It's easy to get distracted by these things. It's easy. And the author of Hebrews is calling you to make effort. To hold fast. To consider. To stare at. To hold tightly to this confession. It doesn't simply mean that you make the confession. If he only wanted you to make the confession, that's what he would have said. Instead, he says, grab tightly your confession of faith. Hold fast to this confession. And then he tells you why. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he says here, hold fast to your confession, because Jesus Christ can sympathize with you. Now, I told you it's easy to drift. I want you to get this. Jesus knows it's easy to drift. Jesus knows it's easy to drift. We get depressed. We get down. Jesus knows you get down and depressed. Jesus knows we get distracted. Jesus knows you get distracted. He knows. And get this. He sympathizes. He understands. He's an understanding God. I remember the story I've told you before about a professor of mine in seminary who had this um, assistant, and the assistant was responsible for turning in a bunch of grades and getting a bunch of papers turned back, and it was a fireable offense. This assistant was going to lose his job 
if he did not have these things turned in at the right time. The assistant forgot. And I watched as my professor came in. He got there a few minutes early that day, and he came in and he shut the door and he said, uh, he sent his assistant out to go do something, and he told the class, he said, listen, I want you to understand something about grace. He said, I want you to understand the circumstance, and you're going to watch something happen in this room that's not going to make sense to you. But I want you to understand the grace of Jesus Christ over your souls. And some, he said, some of you are going to be preachers, and we need to make sure that you get this because you're lousy. These literal words, you're lousy. And we all kind of nodded, laughed a little, chuckled a little, and then he explained the situation. This young man had forgotten to do something that he was supposed to do, and what he had forgotten to do is a fireable offense at that school. So, young man comes in, the assistant comes in and sits down, and he is trembling. Because he knows that he has lost his job, and he's about to lose his academic career. Sits down and he's trembling at the table. And we can all see he's been crying. Professor walks up to the podium and says, Class, I am very sorry. I did not get your papers done. It's my fault completely. I... I didn't do them like I was supposed to. I did not get them done. And so, you don't have your papers back. I apologize. We'll have to retroactively do your grades. Uh, so your grades won't be out till midsummer. This was the spring semester. Your grades won't be out till midsummer. You're all going to have an eye on your, uh, your card. But listen, it's entirely my fault. I'm very sorry. Uh, please forgive me. I will have your grades out as soon as possible. Then he looked at this young man and said, Brother, thank you so much for all the work you've put in this semester. I'm sorry and I apologize to you for not having finished that. Please forgive me. I'll make sure the dean knows it was my fault entirely. I will, I will make sure he knows that this is my fault. We all watched, and this was the view that we all had of this young man. We all watched as he went from trembling to face in his hands, head down, clearly weeping. You see, that professor turned to this young man and gave grace upon grace upon grace. And he told us why. Because I was in the same shoes when I was an assistant. And I know how hard and how heavy and how weighty that is. We do not have a high priest who does not understand. Our high priest understands your pain. Those times when you get frustrated and upset, our high priest understands those things. Times when other people bother you. Have you ever read the Gospels? Jesus walks around with 12 guys who just don't get it ever. Ever. 
In fact, at one point, they come over the, the hill of a city, they see the city, and two of them go, now are we going to light them all on fire and burn them to death? And Jesus goes, are you, what, seriously, do you even know who I, what? Do you even know the Father? I don't, I've been walking with you for two years now, you know nothing. They're, they seem concerned about breakfast more than they are about people's souls. What are we going to have for breakfast tomorrow, Jesus? Jesus is like, are you kidding me? That's why he's talked in parables, by the way. Sparrow has a place for his head to lay and fox has a home, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What? I want breakfast, Jesus. Well, there was a farmer in a field and he buried a pearl. What? <laughs> this, is, this is the way our Lord operates. He is a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, who has made a way for us, and he bears us on his shoulders. Remember the clothing of the high priest. He bears our names on his shoulders and on his heart as he goes before the Lord on our behalf. This is a great high priest who understands your every pain. He understands. So when Jesus calls you to overcome sin, you need to understand that he gets it. He gets it. He was tempted. And He overcame. He was a man who overcame temptation. In fact, you think your temptation was bad. He was in a desert. He was in a desert with no food, fasting, and the devil was standing in front of Him and tempted Him in ways you can't imagine. So yeah, he can understand your temptations. He gets them. He gets it. So Jesus is a great high priest. Verse 16, the next command comes out of this one. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Just pause right there. Let's Because he's our great high priest, because he's our Savior and Lord, and by holding fast to the confession... We draw near. So how do you draw near to the throne of grace? By holding fast to the confession. Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. So He ought to be on your heart, on your mind, in front of you, before your eyes, ready for you to grab hold of. Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord, by that confession, by holding tight to that, we draw near to the throne of grace. Did you notice it's not the throne of judgment? It's not the throne of judgment. This is where the great judge, the king, sits. The king of kings, lord of lords, who every prophet, when he sees him, falls face down on his face. Even John the Apostle sees this throne and drops. No one can stand before it without being overwhelmed and falling flat. The 24 elders in the book of Revelation all cast their crowns down before him, the, the symbol being literally throw them at the throne in almost awe and fear and drop to their face. Let us approach that throne of grace. This is being hit with a water balloon because that throne is terrifying. And we ought to be judged by it. But instead, we are offered grace from it. So we are to draw 
near to the throne of grace. And why? Because we have a high priest who sympathizes with our, with our failings, who sympathizes with our sin, who knows our weaknesses, who gets it, and who, unlike us, is not at all sinful, but who has taken us knowing everything about us, who has taken you knowing every little detail about you and walked you into the presence of God and said, this is mine. This is my brother, sister. This is mine. And they are here for you, Lord. They are ours, God. I have taken their place. We have a great high priest. So since we have a great high priest, let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, the grace of God is the greatest help in your time of need. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's dark thoughts. It doesn't matter if it's physical ailment. It doesn't matter if it's relational strife. God's grace is sufficient to cover every single need and to answer our every desperate plea. This is the great high priest that we worship. So out of this confession, holding fast to this confession, we draw near to the throne of grace because Jesus became man and felt our weakness and walked with us and has been among us is among us. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest... So we got this little interlude here, by the way, verses 1 through 4, where he's going to tell you a little bit about the high priest. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. Key word there is appointed. He's appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Remember, we saw in second in 1 Samuel, Eli fails to do this. He fails to do this so badly that he says, who can mediate between man and God? You, you're the high priest. That's your job. And he fails to do it. And what do we see when the high priest of man fails? God provides the high priest, the great high priest. And so we, we have here, he's appointed to act on behalf of man in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So he can deal gently with those who are struggling because he himself struggles. He himself is beset with weakness. It's phrased that way on purpose. He himself is beset with weakness. He has weaknesses. He is the same. We have a saying at this church, everyone struggles. Your struggles just look different than mine. Let's struggle together. And we say that because when you are struggling with sin, we want you to know that that's okay because we all struggle with sin. And when you struggle with sin, it doesn't make you any less than when I struggle with sin. Just our struggles are different. That's the only difference. They're both struggles. 
Your struggles don't invalidate my struggles. My struggles don't invalidate your struggles. We struggle best when we struggle together. God likes wrestling people. People who wrestle. So we struggle. We wrestle. Verse 3. Because of this, the high priest is obliged, obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor, that is the honor of being high priest, for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So Aaron, the Levitical high priest, becomes high priest because God has appointed the Levitical line as high priest. It's important to key in that that's Aaron that he's talking about. Just as Aaron was appointed high priest, Aaron was appointed high priest by God. Verse 5. So Jesus did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's important that you understand when he's talking about the, the man's high priest, he references Aaron. When he talks about Jesus, he references Melchizedek. We studied, the last, we studied last week who Melchizedek was. This is a random high priest that shows up in the Old Testament before the law is ever there. He's the righteous king, the king of peace. That's his name. Melchizedek means righteous king, and he's the king over Shalom. Salem is the way that we read it. King of peace, but not just any peace heavenly peace. So he's the righteous king of heavenly peace. And he comes to Abraham bringing what? Wine and bread. He gives him communion. And he's the king, the righteous king, the high priest of El Elyon, the God of the upper room, where Jesus breaks bread with his disciples and says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you in the new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me, the same thing we do every week. Melchizedek is the line of Jesus. Jesus is of that line of priests. All the worldly men, all the men who have served as high priests are Aaron and Levi. And yet, Jesus supersedes them, comes before them, He's there even before the law is enacted. We have Christ, the perfect high priest. Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by God. Verse 7. In the, in the days of his flesh, in the days of his skin, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Now, there are multiple places in the gospel where Jesus offers loud cries and tears. There are multiple times when Jesus weeps. There's one that's recorded when it says Jesus wept. There's another that says he sweat drops of blood because he was in such agony. But I 
I don't think it's far-fetched to say that Jesus was very much praying in fervor when he prayed to the Lord. That in that passage, John 15 through 17, when Jesus is praying and talking with his disciples, we see him bowing before God on behalf of his disciples, pleading with God that they would be one, that they would get it, that his spirit would walk with them, that they would abide in him. Jesus, with loud prayers and supplications and cries and tears to God, the one who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence or fear or awe. In other words, Jesus prayed, and when Jesus prayed, God heard and listened. same way you have a great intercessor in Jesus Christ who stands before the Lord and when he prays when he calls to the Lord God listens indeed God he has put his spirit in you and that spirit that reverential fear that results from that spirit drives our prayers and drives the power of those prayers. You want a powerful prayer life? Dig into Jesus. Dig hard into knowing Him fully, into getting into who He is, and into His presence. You want your prayers to matter? Lay them before the God of the universe in Jesus. Verse 8, Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now there's a, a bad theology that pulls out of this the idea that Jesus somehow had to learn to be perfect. No. Jesus was made perfect. He is perfect from the outset, we saw that in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Jesus is perfect. Now, my father-in-law put it this way. He said, if somebody designs a perfect car, that does not mean that the car had a flaw before. It means they made a perfect car. Jesus is perfect from the outset. There's no error or falsehood or, or struggle in his perfection. He is perfect in every way. He's perfect. He sympathizes with you because he was a man. And all the weaknesses you have, he struggled with. But he never faltered. He never failed. He was never imperfect. So we have a perfect high priest who became the source of eternal salvation. Note, it's not temporary salvation. It's not salvation based on merit. It's eternal salvation. If it was based on merit, it would only last for a little while because your merit can't live up to God. This is eternal. It's not temporary. It's eternal, meaning outside of time, meaning it starts now. Yes, we wait for the full consummation of that salvation where we are in heaven 
with God and He has united heaven and earth and it is paradise restored and new earth, new heaven and awesome. And we read about that and it's hard not to get excited and ramble about that. We wait for that and yet the salvation is eternal here and now. You have that salvation now. His death was sufficient to cover your every sin and to bring you salvation now. That you'd be free from sin now. You are rescued and redeemed eternal salvation to all who obey Him. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Obedience is the mark of belief. If you believe, you obey. If you believe, you obey. There are multiple times in the Gospel of John and in 1 John where obedience and belief are interchangeable. In fact, there's one sentence in chapter 3 and 6, uh, chapter 3 of John, where he says it's interchangeable. And again in chapter 6, where they use the same word, obey and believe. You have been brought to salvation. And as evidence of that, your life begins to look different and you begin to obey Jesus. Jesus was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was designated by God high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In pondering this high priest, I thought about what he has done. I just want to read to you this poem that encapsulates some of that, some of what we talked about. My high priest lays before God the least, the lame, the broken, and shamed, the constantly badgering, mixed up menagerie of men covered in sin and need of intervention. My priest calls us his own, but will soon be alone. He cries out for strength to remain and be one, forsaking his life, taking strife and death, forsaken he'll be before the God of justice and wrath. My priest lay me before God, begging forgiveness. More than this, he came down to the dirt, the earth, to make clean. And now, on behalf of his own, intercedes. My priest lay himself down, not demanding his crown, giving, gave his life as atonement over me, the good shepherd, taking the place of the sheep. My priest begs for the Spirit to come and dwell the, one, the ones who seek to follow his way on the road that lies ahead, the way to a heavenly home. My priest does call for revelation to be ushered in upon those who believe this manifestation of salvation's glory, to have eyes to see and hearts to receive. My priest is beautiful, loving my frailty, giving me love to dwell within, conquering death, overcoming sin, and calling for love to overwhelm my senses from the Father above. My priest gave me a name, exalted the frame, of the portrait began in creation's grace. The high priest's image on a pallet of dirt. The sensation of life inside my soul giving me worth. 
my high priest remains, calling for my good, echoing my name to the Father of lights, the artwork protecting the frame. He lays my name down before the King, declaring my forgiveness. My priest covers all who believe. He beckons to all, come and receive. Hear the news of his substitution for sheep, the shepherd who died, my great high priest. 